need it. I want you to turn in your Bible, whether it's physical or digital, to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew chapter number 17. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with family or friends or loved ones. And uh, I know that the weather uh, has been particularly complicated this morning. I want to thank all of you uh, who uh, came today. I know that some truly it wouldn't have been wise for them to come uh, if they have, you know, really weak uh, legs or knees. Maybe that would be a danger to them. And uh, I know there are probably some watching on live stream and all of that. And so I just want to say, church, thank you for prioritizing church if you're able to make it. Of course, if it's dangerous uh, as your pastor, I never expect you to come if you feel like your family's life is at risk, if the roads were ever that bad. Uh, But I do honor your willingness to be here. It'd be easy to make excuses and not be here. In fact, this morning, as I sat in my couch with my red plaid Christmas blankie on me, preparing my notes for this morning, I thought, man, in some ways, I'd much rather just stay right here, you know? And so if you ever feel that way, know your pastor is sinful enough to feel the exact same way. But we're here, and uh, your presence encourages me, your singing, and hopefully the word today, as we all gather around it, will be encouraging together. Matthew chapter number 17 is where we'll be this morning. And Really, I want you to take your mind back to 15th century Italy. Of course, in the 15th century, it was the era of the Renaissance. And Italy, and particularly Florence, was filled with world-renowned painters. I mean, really, the arts have such a rich history in that area. Uh, Maybe an artist like Michelangelo, we've all heard of him, not the Ninja Turtle, The painter, Michelangelo, he's from that area. And in that same area as Michelangelo, there was a very poor, humble artisan named Leo. He went for years painting in his workshop, creating pieces of art that never really captured the public's attention until one day, a wealthy patron visited Leo's studio and commissioned a small painting for his private collection. Maybe he thought he'd get a little bit of a bargain by this up-and-coming artist that was unknown. And little did anyone know that this unassuming artist, Leo, would go on and create the masterpiece that we all know, even if you're not an art person, the piece of art called the Mona Lisa. I think I have a picture of it there. Um, That's the Mona Lisa, I, of course, am speaking not of a guy named Leo, but of Leonardo da Vinci, who we all know, right? I mean, you don't have to be an art person. You've heard of Leonardo da Vinci. Here's a man that for much of his life was overlooked. He wasn't impressive to anybody, but in one defining moment, this glorious masterpiece, the Mona Lisa, changed how he was seen not just by the public in his time, but for all of history. In that one moment in creating this masterpiece, Leonardo da Vinci would now be renowned as one of the most famous artists in all of history, much like that man, Michelangelo. I think for most of us, it's hard to think of a time when someone like Leonardo da Vinci wasn't famous. 
Because all of us, we know him as this great icon of art. And you could say the same for many other celebrities in our day, right? Think of, you know, even sports icons. It's hard for us to picture a day like when Tom Brady was overlooked as a quarterback in Michigan football. We can't really picture that because we know him as what I would say is the best quarterback of all time in American football. And I think if we take our mind to that place of whether it's Tom Brady or Leonardo da Vinci, these people who, though they are famous now, were very overlooked and very neglected by society, that might give you and me a a tiny bit of a taste of how it would have been tempting to view Jesus in his day. Now, we know as we study the book of Matthew, uh, now in the second part of our series in Matthew, we took a brief break in Genesis that that Jesus, in some ways, was a normal man like everybody, right? I mean, he had flesh and bones. He got tired. He slept. He ate. But, of course, in other ways, Jesus was unlike anyone else his followers and society had ever seen. This is a man that taught with incredible authority. The crowds would exclaim that he taught with more authority than all of the renowned teachers of the law in their day. He had miracle-working power that set him apart, right? He cured the incurable. It wasn't totally unheard of for someone to cast out a demon. It wasn't totally unheard of for miracles to happen. Uh, Certainly the Old Testament records a lot of those. Moses, Elijah, and others. But Jesus seemed to always one-up the miracles that Jewish society had seen even in their own scriptures. Here's a man that was raising people from the dead even. He was healing incurable diseases. And so it's natural for us to see how Peter and his disciples would have started to view Jesus as some sort of messianic figure. They would have started to see that this is more than your average ordinary prophet. This is more than John the Baptist. This is more than Elijah. This is even more than Moses. This guy is spectacular in his own right. But then Jesus throws him a curveball, right? Last week we talked about it. Because Jesus, as Peter recognizes Jesus as the Savior and the Son of God, immediately after that, Jesus says, well, let me tell you a little bit more about the Father's plan for me. And he tells him that his plan from God was not to live in the same way Peter thought he'd live, but to die, to suffer, to be rejected by the elite religious class in Jerusalem, to be killed. Now, if you're a disciple, that would have really surprised you. It would have tempted you to think that Jesus was wrong. In fact, Peter thought Jesus was so off base that the same man that Peter claimed to be the son of God, he then takes him aside and chews him out, you know, uh, Inevitable Peter, right? Always finding a way to open his mouth and stick his foot in it. And Jesus begins to explain that though he would die, and though his disciples were called to suffer in the same way that he was called to suffer, they needed to take up their crosses. Look at chapter 16, verse 28, and see that Jesus also says that there will come a day that these disciples will be rewarded for their labor. They will experience the glory of the Son of God, and they will experience his reward. Look at verse actually 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then... He shall reward every man according to his works. Verse 28 is interesting. 
Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus says, in fact, not only am I promised you that in some future time, I'm gonna come in the glory of my kingdom, he says, some of you, and he's speaking to his disciples, you won't even die until you see my kingdom coming in its glorious power. So here is Jesus, and he's standing among a group of people who are utterly confused. The guy they thought was the son of God is now saying he's gonna die. And they're tempted to doubt. And so the question is, how can Jesus and God the Father assure these disciples whose worst days are ahead of them? Whose most doubtful moments actually still lie ahead? What could Jesus do to assure his disciples that though they would see him face the most despicable death, he was indeed the son of God. Our account this morning that has been labeled for centuries the transfiguration is Jesus's answer, God's gracious answer to those doubts. Now transfiguration is just a fancy word for like a metamorphosis, a, ch a change, a transformation and you and I, might, we might be tempted to think that this passage doesn't really have any relevance to us. After all, what big deal is it that Jesus showed his eternal glory and then concealed it again with his human flesh and then moved on with his day? What does that have to do with someone like you who's sitting here on a snow day in November of 2023 who has your own problems to figure out? But let me assure you, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in a season of discouragement, of waiting on God, Maybe disappointment in God, a lack of hope. This passage is for you. If you're here and you maybe are doubting who Jesus is, this passage will help you as you see this glorious expression of Jesus's identity. Or hopefully, if you're not in those two categories, hopefully everyone else fits into this third category. If you just simply want to grow in your love for Jesus, if you just want to know who he is better, oh boy, you can be helped by what Matthew records in chapter 17, verses one through 13. Our passage, I think, breaks down into three sections. It's the revelation of Christ in verses one through five, the response of the disciples in verses five through eight, and the realization of the disciples in verses nine through 13. So I want you to just Read the story with me in verses one through five and see this glorious revelation of Christ in Matthew 17, verses one through five. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart or alone. And it was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him, and then answered Peter and said, <laughs> he just can't help himself, can he? Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, or tents, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. 
And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let's read those last three words together. Hear ye him. Now, what may be lost upon us as a, maybe a non-Jewish audience is that when Matthew writes this story, I don't even like using the word story, but this account, when Matthew writes this, he's very intentional to write it in a way to show us and have several, what we could call in the movie industry, callbacks to the Old Testament. There's several things in this story that Matthew is pointing out that remind us of some very prominent Old Testament stories. And of course, Matthew's writing to what we presume is an audience that's very concerned about Jewish uh, connections between Jesus and the Old Testament. And there's a lot of details in here that I just want to point out really quickly that show us that Matthew's showing us a bigger story than just the immediate context. He shows us in verse number one, this is rare in Matthew that he gives us like a timestamp. He says that this account happens after six days in verse number one. And that actually has a callback to Moses in Exodus 24, 16, marching up Mount Sinai. It's the very same language there that that happened after six days. Jesus is bringing up three other guys with him, right? His three closest disciples, James and John and Peter. And Moses actually does the exact same thing when he goes up Mount Sinai. He has three of his closest leaders when he ascends Mount Sinai to see God's glory. Then there are these interesting statements in verse number two about Jesus' face shining like the sun and his clothes shining like a bright white light. Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where someone comes down from a mountain and God's people recognize that they are shining with the glory of God and they hide their faces because he's shining so brightly? Well, of course, that's what people notice about Moses when he comes down from Mount Sinai. Then Matthew points out several other things that remind us of some other prominent stories in the Old Testament. Of course, we have this resurrection appearance of Moses and Elijah, uh, who really, I think, are intended to represent the law and the prophets. And not only that, Moses and Elijah would be the greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament. These two guys, if you could pin all of Old Testament history on the two most mighty figures, really you would pick out Moses and Elijah. I mean, Abraham was great, but he didn't do miracles like Moses and Elijah did. And so these two guys were big, prominent Old Testament figures. And then there's this other interesting detail in verse number five about a cloud overshadowing them and a voice coming from that cloud. Well, when else does that seem familiar from the Old Testament? Well, that is how God gave the law on Mount Sinai. A cloud came down and God's voice spoke from that cloud to Moses directly. So a lot of cool callbacks, but there's one really, really big difference that you and I have to understand that makes Jesus very different from Moses and from Elijah, who himself had a very similar experience on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai himself, where God spoke to him. You, you probably know the phrase, a still small voice. That was from Elijah's experience on Mount Sinai. 
But Jesus's experience here is very different in one very important way. You see, when Moses comes down from the mountain and his face and his clothes are shining so much that the people cover their faces and hide in terrified fear, Moses is very different from Jesus in that way because Moses was not displaying his own glory. Moses was reflecting the glorious splendor of Jehovah God. But when Jesus stands on the mountain this day and in verse number two, transfigures before them, the big difference is that Jesus is not shining a light that is reflecting the glory of someone else. Jesus is taking off his humble clothes as a human, so to speak, his skin that covered his glory and is showing them the glorious God he's always been from eternity past. In effect, Jesus is saying, I am the light that lit up Moses' face in Exodus 24. Jesus is in effect is saying, I am that still small voice that spoke from the cloud to Elijah. He's saying the glorious splendor of God that you see in the mountain peaks of the Old Testament, it is me. That's who I am. What Jesus is doing in this passage, he's not fundamentally changing who he is. Jesus is showing who he's always been. Prior to the moment that Philippians 2 says that he took upon himself the form of a servant, it was made in the likeness of men. As a modern reader, you and I should recognize that this splendid glory that Jesus appears in here is not just who he was prior to becoming a human, what we'll celebrate here at this Christmas season. So for all of eternity past, Jesus was this glorious figure shown in Matthew 17, but what we should recognize as modern readers is the glory that Jesus showed his disciples here is the same glory that he exists in right now today. This, what we read in Matthew 17, is the best way for you to think about Jesus today. No, no, no. Jesus is not just a humble lamb sitting on the right hand of the Father. No. Jesus is the very radiance of God. The very glorious light of God sitting enthroned in heaven right now. So much so that these disciples, when they see that glory, they are not only terrified in fear, but they just act a little bit stupid. They're so confused by what they see. Because even though Jesus is showing his glory, Peter still somehow finds a way to misunderstand what's going on here. I think because he was so caught off guard, Peter makes a very odd request in verse number four, right? It stands out to us in our account. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. You know, you know what he's saying there? He's like, let's hang out here a little while. Let's not go back down the mountain. And he makes this offer, and, and, and I think out of reverence makes this offer. He says, Lord, if you will, So he's recognizing in some way Jesus' lordship, but he makes a fundamental mistake. He says, Lord, I want to make three tabernacles. Now, I like the way that's translated because when we think of a tabernacle, what do we think? We think of the the tent that they worshiped God in the Old Testament. It It was more than just a tent. It was a place of worship. But Jesus is, or sorry, Peter is not saying, let's make a place of worship for you. How many tabernacles does he want to build? Three. 
Not just for Jesus. He wants one for Elijah and for Moses. So in some sense, I don't know, maybe Peter is somehow equivocating the glory of Jesus with Moses and Elijah, though he's the one who confessed earlier, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In some way, it's still unclear to him that Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. He is superior to him. And that is why I love how the account reads that at the very moment Peter makes this very odd and dumb request in verse number five, notice that God himself interrupts him. You know, sometimes God is so gracious, he interrupts us from saying too many stupid things. You know what I mean? It says in verse number five, and while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God says this, make no mistake, my son is superior. Let it be known, Peter, that Jesus is not equal with Moses and Elijah because Moses is not my son. Elijah is not my son. God is making it clear that Jesus is not only the culmination of all of the Old Testament. He's making it clear that Jesus had a unique and special relationship to him as his son. We, those who read uh, Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 15, know that after Moses, there is prophesied that there would be another prophet like Moses. Well, Jesus is more than just a prophet like Moses. God is saying, he is my son. And Jesus is not just like Elijah, whom some people thought he was in chapter number 16, a miracle-working, truth-speaking prophet. No, no, no. Jesus is even more than that. Jesus is the very unique and special son of God. He is the son of God that was prophesied by Psalm 2. In Isaiah 42, and as I said right now, this exalted son of God that we see in verses one through five is the exalted son of God that sits at God's right hand at this very moment. That when we sing, we are singing to a Christ who looks more like this than he did in chapter 16. He's exalted and he is glorious. So there's this revelation of Jesus. But the real question is what do you and I do in response to a Christ who is the very light and splendor of God? If we are Jesus followers here and we believe, as I assume by many of your responses to what I've just said, we believe he is glorious. He is the exalted son. What is the proper way for you and I to respond to the glory of Christ? Well, Matthew shows us. He shows us in two ways. He shows us in our text, and this is the very central idea that I think God is driving into our hearts this morning, is that Christ's revealed glory should move you to obedience 
and worship. How do we respond to Jesus? Obedience and worship. Look how the Father says to respond to Jesus. He says, this is my beloved Son, in verse number five, in whom I am well pleased. Don't overlook these three words. Hear ye him. Now, do you remember when something similar like this is said about Jesus? It was at his baptism. Interestingly, um, the only time God speaks from heaven towards his son is the two times Jesus identifies with sinners. When he's baptized with a baptism of repentance that sinners would normally partake of, and when Jesus prophesied of his coming death. But in Matthew 3, I believe it is, when, when God speaks from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that's where it stops. And so we need to take careful notice of what God adds on this occasion. When he says these very important words that have profound application to everybody sitting in this room, when God says essentially, listen to Jesus. Now we have to ask this question. Why would God say, listen to Jesus? I mean, that's always been a good idea, hasn't it? I mean, listen to Jesus. That is good life advice. If you want some good life advice, just listen to Jesus, okay? Take that with you on your way out this morning. Good life advice. Why on this moment, in this occasion, does God care enough to speak from heaven out of an overshadowing cloud on a high mountain to say to Jesus' disciples, you need to listen to Jesus? Well, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. If you want to know what the disciples should listen to, look at Matthew 17, and assuming you have red words in your Bible, Look back when the last red words were. And what is Jesus talking about in those red words? Well, first of all, he's talking about his very controversial plan to go die. You know the one that Peter said, "Uh uh-uh, not so, Lord. You think maybe God the Father is saying something in response to that? Oh, Peter, you don't think Jesus should die? Um, I've got a different thought about that. Listen to him. What else was Jesus saying in those red words? He's saying, it's not just me who needs to die. He says to all of his disciples, you need to die. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me. In fact, if you're not willing to deny yourself and take up your cross, you aren't even a follower of me. Don't call yourself a follower of Jesus if that's not your life. Essentially, here's what God is saying to Peter and these disciples, that they needed to listen to what Jesus said when it was the very thing they didn't want to hear. This morning, what you and I need to recognize is that we are worshiping a risen, exalted Christ. And there are going to be things that Jesus says that you and I don't want to hear, that don't make sense to us. Like Peter, like, not so, Lord. I don't know about that one. But yet, the voice of God himself comes down from heaven and says, not so fast. You don't get to pick and choose what commands of Jesus you want to listen to. You need to listen to the person of Jesus, not just the things about Jesus you happen to like. I think that's a word for all of our culture. I don't know how many people I've met in our community. In fact, I sat at a banquet a week ago where someone said this, 
I just follow, you know, what Jesus said, but I don't, I don't really think the Bible teaches against this or that. Well, I, you know, Jesus said all of that stuff. He's kind of a package deal. You need to listen to everything Jesus says. And sometimes what Jesus says demands a lot of you and me, but God says, listen. When Jesus says that to be his follower means the end of what you want and the beginning of asking what Jesus wants, listen to him. When he says to follow Jesus means to pick up your cross and be willing to die, listen to him. When Jesus says stuff that is hard to listen to, like love your enemies, no, 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 don't, don't gossip about them. Love them. Pray for them. You know, I've been taking uh, prayer requests in Sunday school for over two years as a pastor, and myself included, we're all guilty, I've not heard one prayer request <laughs> Pastor, would you pray for my enemy? You know why? Maybe because some people may think that's not the most appropriate public prayer request. I get that. Probably more often the reason is, like me, that's the last thing I want to do for my enemy. I can tell you a lot of things I want to do to my enemies, and I don't think prayer is high on the list. Someone with me on that? All right, we got some people over here. Right, there we go. Love your enemies? Come on, Jesus. But can you picture this morning God from heaven speaking? No, no, no. Listen. Jesus says, you need to offer unlimited forgiveness. That's a glorious command until you have to try that one on for size. 70 times seven? Jesus says, no, nah, that's not enough. <laughs> you need more. But the father says, listen. Here's another one that I think most of us happily ignore. Believe it or not, Jesus said in Matthew 6, this command, don't worry. Don't worry. Like about anything. Worry not allowed in the kingdom of God. Some of y'all are already breaking that command because you're worrying about what I'm about to say. But Jesus said, don't worry. In fact, if someone told you as a friend, hey, you shouldn't be worrying about that, you would say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? But the father says, no, listen. Listen. And the connotation is obey. Friend, if Jesus is truly exalted, like this passage says he is, if he is this transfigured person right now, appearing in heavenly glory at the right hand of the Father, you and I have no right to question or dismiss his commands. The only thing we do is we submit and surrender and obey. How do we respond to Christ's revealed glory? We respond by obedience. But the next few verses show us actually by good example how the disciples responded in worship. Notice the very careful language of this, these verses. I, I love verse number five where um, the father says, hear ye him. 
He's showing Christ's superiority even to Moses and Elijah. And I think that shows us something, Christians, doesn't it? About how Christ, if he says something that changes what was said in the Old Testament, we listen to him, right? He is superior to the law of Moses. I don't think this is an accident that God says, listen to Jesus, when the last time God spoke from a cloud on a mountain was when he gave the old covenant laws. And he says, now listen to Jesus, And when he affirms those old covenant laws, we listen to him. When he modifies them and transforms them, we listen to him as well. He's even superior to the voice of the prophets. Listen to him. And then in verse number eight, this is so beautifully worded. When it says, after the disciples fall down and worship in fear, it says in verse number eight, and when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. I think Matthew writes that so artfully, doesn't he, to show us that God is so concerned about Jesus' superiority being recognized by his disciples that the moment they fall down on their knees in worship, Moses and Elijah disappear because the only one who should be worshiped is his son. He is high and lifted up And he's higher and lifted up even more than the most heroic figures of the entire Old Testament. He is the culmination of everything Moses wrote and everything Elijah said and everything Isaiah prophesied. Really, I think in some ways, Matthew's saying this. If you want to read what those guys wrote properly, think about this guy when you're reading them. When you read Moses, think of how he's pointing to the superior glory of Christ. And as Christians today, when we recognize this Christ is exalted on high, we must respond with a worship that shows how worthy Christ is. So I think we all ought to ask ourselves this morning, does our worship show how worthy Christ is? Does the way you worship Show the value you place on Christ. There's a lot of ways and things that involve, that are involved in worship, aren't there? And I'm not going to make any apologies this morning for getting you to think more seriously about how you worship because what you and I have to recognize, and it's my job to point this out to you as a pastor who's preaching the Bible, that you and I live in a culture that has devalued Christ. We live in a culture that has dumbed down worship, that has taken away reverence. And I'm not saying we have to worship like they did the 14th century in every regard, but I am saying that as people that live in a certain cultural moment, we ought to ask ourselves some serious questions and ask ourselves if the way we worship actually shows that we believe Christ is exalted on a high or not, right? You know how you sing? is part of your worship. Now, there's someone here that truly, God bless you, I would never, ever, unless you paid me large sums of money, put you on a platform with a microphone. You're not a good singer, and and that's okay. I'm not talking about the quality of your voice tone. I'm not talking about how well you match pitch. That's not what God cares about. Praise God for that, right? What I am talking about is your focus 
in your reverence, in your devotion that is or maybe is not expressed by the way you approach the singing time in church. Listen, <clears throat> the singing time is not filler time. It, it's, it's not unimportant. It is extremely important. It's not just to prepare your heart for the preaching. No, 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 no. No, no, we are actually talking to God in the singing if we're doing it right. If you do singing right, prayer and singing have no difference. They're the same thing. It is important, right? And I think some of us, we approach the singing time with so much casualness that we wouldn't even approach a Thanksgiving dinner at a friend's house. You know, we, we wander in without any care or concern of when we actually start singing, right? I know this morning there's some lateness because of the snow and all that. I mean, I took 10 extra minutes to get here, I felt like. So I'm just saying that, that we ought to prioritize being here when the singing happens. That's a good idea, right? Don't just come here to see what God wants to say to you. Why don't you come and say something to him too? But sometimes it's distractions. Sometimes it's playing around. Sometimes it's, you know, if, if it's a style of song we don't like, we just cross our arms and we don't sing. I just want to ask you just to think, does the way you approach the singing time actually show that you think Christ is worth all of your worship? What we are doing here on a Sunday morning, I, I would in some ways rather not call it church, I'd rather call it community worship. Because that's what this is. What, what church is, is not just like, let's go see friends, you know, let's catch up with the people we like that, you know, we happen to all meet at the same place once a week. Now that's all good, okay? I've preached on that too. But I'm saying that, that that church is far more than that. Church is even more than just listening to me. It's definitely more than that. Church is you coming together with other brothers and sisters in Christ to worship a glorious and exalted Christ. And it's so important that you don't just worship him by yourself, that the Bible commands you as a Christian to worship with other believers. In fact, I don't know if you can call yourself a Christian if you don't even think it's important to worship with other Christians. That's how very important it is in the Bible. And sometimes, I'm not necessarily thinking of anyone in particular, I'm just saying in our culture, that the prioritization of showing up to church on a Sunday is about as important as some other hobby or club or gathering. And frankly, if we're being honest, it's far less important than our own job. That we never miss a day at our job. I mean, no days off. I mean, you, you could be throwing up and you're gonna find a way to like pretend you're not sick and show up to your job. But when church happens, sometimes it can be like the last thing. Bottom shelf priority. Ah, oh, you know, I'm really busy. I mean, is Christ exalted at the right hand of God or not? Pastor, my family's in town. Is Christ exalted at the right hand of God or not? How you worship, to some degree, shows the worth you place on Christ. And here are some disciples that I think we ought, to, we ought to really capture how they felt in the presence of Christ. Because, by the way, in some way, this is how you will feel when you see him. Look at verse six. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. By the way, you read Revelation 
when John stands in the presence of Christ? Exact same response. It was the second time around. If Christ's glory could get three grown men to fall on their faces in fear, I think some of us should be a lot more serious about how we worship. Another way we worship sometimes is just actually by bowing down and praying and exalting Jesus in our prayer. Verses 9 through 13 show us the realization. And there's a lot more here, but I think there's some interesting things here because you, clearly these guys are not quite getting a hold of what Jesus just showed them. Verse 9, they're coming down from the mountain, and Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And verse number 10, his disciples are caught up because they're like, Okay, we've seen this glorious revelation of Christ, but there's some boxes that we think should have been checked on God's calendar of events first. Look at verse 10. They're saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Jesus is saying he's come in his kingdom, right? Verse number 28. He says, I, basically, chapter 17 is the fulfillment of chapter 16, verse 28. Some of you won't die until you see me coming in my kingdom. And ta-da, Jesus has come in his kingdom here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples are all whacked out because they're like, Jesus, you haven't heard what Rabbi so-and-so said in his prophecy class. He said that Elijah has to come first before your kingdom can come. That's what they taught me. I have a prophetic timeline to show you, Jesus. And when, when that happens, then you can come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, bucko, everything that has happened that needs to happen before I come has happened. Verses 11 and 12 says, Elijah has come. We speak of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. He was rejected in the same way John the Baptist was rejected is the same way I'm gonna be rejected. But the, all the things that need to happen before I come in my kingdom have happened. And I would say to those of us who are tempted to misinterpret prophecy or to mishear things about prophecy, say, well, such and such needs to happen before Jesus can return. I'm gonna go with Jesus on this one. That if Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse number 11 through 12, that everything has happened before he can come in his kingdom, I'm going with Jesus, not the prophecy chart, okay? Jesus can come back anytime. It don't matter what happens in the Middle East. It don't matter what happens with Israel. Jesus is not bound to Middle Eastern politics. He has his own right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Every box has been checked on his prophetic calendar, and he can come back whenever he wants but I think the real point of verses 9 through 13 is in verse number 9. Because what Jesus is saying is that it would be at the moment of his resurrection that all of this would make sense. He says in verse number 9, you will understand this glorious vision you've seen when I rise from the dead. Why? Because what we know as Christians is that the resurrection is the moment when Christ's glory and exaltation was definitively proven by the Father. It is in response to the resurrection that God, that, that Paul writes 
that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name and that at, every, at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question the passage leaves us with, and I think Matthew intended to leave his audience with, is that if Jesus said that the disciples would better understand his glory after the resurrection, where does that leave you and me as post-resurrection followers of Jesus? It means that if Peter and James and John were supposed to obey and worship then, how much more should you and I obey and worship now? Because Jesus did not just privately display his glory. He publicly declared it by triumphing over death itself. And that's why, Christians, we must respond with obedience and worship. In a way, this morning, we have stood on that mountain with Jesus. I think, based on Peter's writings in 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1, that his disciples did not leave that mountain unchanged. And neither should you. As you and I leave this church house this morning, I hope the words of God the Father ring in your ears. Hear ye him. As you go throughout the week, remember, you are not the follower of just a humble lamb. You are the follower of a glorious resurrected Christ. That every setback you face as a follower of Jesus is not the final word. Remember that as Jesus said in verses 26 through 28, that the day of judgment is the day he will return. You will be judged by this glorious Christ and all evil will be judged by this glorious Christ. And that is why you must obey and worship him just as much as they did on that mountain. I hope as we leave the presence of the Lord this morning, the words of the psalmist echo in our ears, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Let's bow in prayer.